Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, please, in the passage that Eddie read a moment ago. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. The world needs what you possess. The world needs you to proclaim what you possess from God by grace. We don't merely live in a bad news world. I was speaking to Ben a moment ago, and he's eager to get back to work. He's been off out for a long time. And he said, there's only so much news you can watch. And it's nothing but bad news. And it's true. There's Our world, we live in a grievous news world. The world is filled with grievous news every day. Who are we, though? We are good news people in this grievous news world. And the world needs from us the good news that we possess from God. I just want you to think about how different things are now for us in Christ. We are those whom God foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified in Christ. Don't you think that the world needs what we have? Who we are in Jesus? At one time, we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5. Though everything in this world give way, we belong to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. The world needs what we have. It is awesome to be a Christian. It is joy. In Luke 2, remember the the angel appearing to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem and said that they should not fear because he had good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Good news of great joy. And then how those heavenly beings sang, because that very night, the Son of God entered into the world in the flesh, born that very night. Good news of great joy. We are good news people in a grievous news world. The Bible says that we have received this good news We stand in this good news and we are being saved by it. And we need to proclaim it. News is for being spread, especially the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our charge, it is our calling from the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim this good news to the world. I believe that our greatest hindrance from telling the good news, the greatest hindrance we have that keeps us from making disciples is that we fail so often to reflect on how good this good news really is and how wonderful it will be for those souls who receive it. I have no intent over this message and next week, I think, and maybe a third week. I'm not really sure at this point. But I have no intent to guilt you into making disciples. Rather, I want us to meditate on Matthew 28, 18-20 and meditate on the message we have received, the good news we have, and be strengthened by the joy of the Gospel. Be equipped by the joy of the Gospel and the reminder of its power to go out and proclaim that Gospel. 
to go out and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So let us bow our heads together and bow our hearts before the Lord and ask for just that, to be strengthened by the joy of the gospel. Father, we need this message and we need your Holy Spirit to help us now. We know, Father, how far short we fall from the command to make disciples of all nations. And so I pray that, Father, you would plant the good news in our hearts. I pray that it would wash over us again and we would be renewed in it. And I pray, Father, so we'd be strengthened and that we would come to a point where we can't but help to spread the gospel. Father, give to us your Holy Spirit for taking to heart your word and for making it known. Help us to know you. Help us to make you known. I thank you for this church family, and I pray that by your word they would be blessed and encouraged and built up. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Let's talk, first of all, briefly about the message of Matthew's gospel. The message of the gospel according to Matthew is that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the king of the ages, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That's how Matthew begins his gospel account. He gives us an introductory genealogy that traces the line of this Jesus of Nazareth to David. He is the heir of David's throne. He's the fulfillment of the promise of God. The, the first outside inquirers that come asking about him go to the king of the nation himself, this Herod the Great he is called, and they ask him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? When Jesus goes out into his public ministry, he says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, in his messages, the Bible sums it up with that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He is the king. In parable after parable, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this and that and so on and so forth through parable after parable. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, he says. He says the kingdom is for the poor in spirit and for those who will do the will of his father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 and the end of Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's about the kingdom and life in the kingdom. That's what Matthew's gospel is about. That Jesus Christ is king. He is the king of the ages. And so, at the end of his life, long after his first persecutor, King Herod, had died, his replacement, Pontius Pilate, pressed Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus confessed. Upon which... Jerusalem demanded his crucifixion. Rome complied. And they hung the plaque over his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And so the Lord Jesus Christ died. But death could not hold the eternal King. And he rose. Death itself surrendered to Christ. And he rose triumphing over sin, death, hell, the grave, all of it. 
And before he went back to glory, triumphant, Jesus gave to his disciples the charge of a king. Well, let me put it in order, the order I have it here. First, the claim of a king in Matthew 28, verse 18. And then the charge of a king. And then finally, a kingly promise. And let's read this text together. First, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the claim of the king. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is his charge as king. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then his kingly promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are good news people in a grievous news world. Who must hear the good news? Who must hear the good news? Jesus says that God has given to him, look back at verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth. He is Lord and he is king of all. Therefore, all must hear it. All the nations must hear the message that Jesus is Lord. I want to clarify this because I think in verses 18 and 19, we could possibly misread it. Jesus is not just laying down the law here as in, I have authority over all, therefore you will do as I say. Now he has the right to say that, definitely, but I don't think that's why he is saying he has all authority. Rather, he is laying down the scope of his authority over all, so that we will realize the scope of the gospel and the scope of our mission. It is to all. As he has authority over all, so our mission is to all. Now, the heart of this charge, the heart of the commission, is this. Everything in verses 19 and 20 hang off of this central command to make disciples. That's the heart of it. So that's his charge. We have his claim. He has all authority. Now his charge, make disciples. And this, we need to understand what this is about. This is why you and I are here. This is why we are here as a church. It is why we are here in this time and place as individuals. Why God has placed you in this context, the, the boundaries, of your life, all of it is so that you will go about making disciples of Jesus Christ and so that we will do it together. But what does it mean? What does it entail? What does it involve? We need to talk about that. So I I think that to come to a good understanding, we just need to start by refreshing on the basic thing of what is a disciple in the first place. I mean, that's going to help us to understand who we are and what we are aiming for in making disciples. What is a disciple? The word disciple simply and literally means learner. A disciple is a learner, which may sound on the surface like Jesus is calling us into some kind of academic, live in a lecture hall kind of life. But you and I both know that According to 
the context of Jesus' message and what He requires of us, that, that is not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to an academic life merely. That's not the makeup of a disciple. Any disciple, really. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus tells us what this learning life is like and what it's for, what discipleship is. Luke 6, verse 40. This is what He said. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is what discipleship is for. Uh, For us as Christians, but Jesus is really speaking broadly here. He's saying this is what the discipleship relationship is for. So that the student, the learner, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. I mean, discipleship is not unique to Christianity, right? I mean, you can be a disciple of anyone, anyone who will be a teacher for any realm of life, any kind of instruction that there is. Even in Jesus' day, discipleship was not unique to what he was doing. Remember, there were disciples of John the Baptist. There were disciples for the scribes and religious leaders and so on. But disciples learned under the training of a teacher. And that teacher became the master of the disciple. So becoming a disciple often meant that you would leave your routine life completely behind for a new life that would become fully devoted and identified with this teacher. You would devote yourself solely to your teacher, to your master. And so that this disciple, whoever he was and whoever he was following, was being identified with that teacher and what that teacher stood for, who he was, what his message was, all of that. Here's another example so we can just get a real good grip on what discipleship involves. This is a secular example, again, from the Bible, however. Think of the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian, when he was just known simply as Saul of Tarsus. When um, Paul finally made it back to Jerusalem and he was uh, he w- began to be persecuted by this crowd, the crowd basically wanted to, to pull him apart and kill him right there. But the soldiers, Roman soldiers, rescued him and they were on their way to take him to their barracks and he, he asked them if he could speak to the people. So he's standing on the, the stairway there of the barracks and he begins to address the people in Hebrew. And this is what he says to them. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. And this is what I want you to get. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. That was his pre-conversion life. He was a disciple of this honored Pharisee, Gamaliel. He was a learner of Gamaliel. And the the aim was that he was going to learn the strict, the strictest observation of the law. And then Jesus called him. And everything changed. His discipleship, the old discipleship relationship was left behind completely. And he became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus calls us, it means that our fundamental identity changes. Our Whatever discipleship 
relationship we were in. Of course, we were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians. Our identity changes. Our life changes. Our learning, all of that, it revolves around Jesus Christ. And this is why we are called Christians. Christians. It's not just a label. It's not simply to identify our chosen religion versus all these other religions. No, this is this is our identity. We're Christians because we're disciples of Jesus Christ being conformed to Him. So what is a disciple of, what is a Christian disciple? We are learners of Jesus Christ sent out to make more learners. And we could think of the church as a learning community devoted from the heart to learning from Jesus. Now, you obviously can't narrow down what we're learning to just a certain part, segment of life. And that's obvious. Because we're disciples of the Lord of all of life. So what we're learning from Jesus is all pervasive. We take all our cues from Christ. From Him, we receive the truth. I, you need to understand this. We receive from Jesus the truth for all of life. We often fall into this silly rut, this tendency to divide up our lives into the realm of sacred and secular. Here's the truth from Jesus, and then there's this other truth, you know, my job training, truth about science, and so on. It's it's wrong. It's so mistaken. Because Christ is the Lord of all life. What we receive from Him, again, is all-pervasive. We learn the way, the truth, the life. And those aren't, you know, you're not taking the way 101, the truth 101, the life 101. These are not three classes to finish our degree. The way, the truth, and the life are Jesus Himself. So we are devoted not to learning and knowing a range of subjects, but we are devoted to learning and knowing a person. The person, Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of this. In, you could actually turn there. Would you, Ephesians 4, verse 20. Just because I want you to see this, and I think if you hear and you see it with your own eyes, um, I'm hoping that you find it as striking as it is striking. In Ephesians 4, Paul is encouraging us to not walk the way of the nations. He's warning us. Look at Ephesians 4.20 and just the verses above that. He warns us not to walk the way of the nations in the futility of their sin and ignorance and hardness of heart. He says, calloused and given to sensuality and greedy for impurity. And then he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And notice again that word learned. That's essential to what a disciple is. He says, that's not the way you learned Jesus. 
And that is really a weird way of talking. He doesn't say that's not what you learned from Jesus. He says that life, that's not what you learned about Jesus. Those, those prepositions or whatever about would be, that's gone. I mean, that's not there. He says that's not the way you learned Christ. You learned Christ. You don't talk that way about any person, do you? I mean, may it never be that you think you come to church to learn Mike Reynolds. You don't talk that way about anyone. No matter how esteemed someone may be, you don't talk about learning them. But Paul says, you learned Christ. We didn't have to learn the old way. We didn't have to learn the broad road that leads to destruction. We were turned that way from our very beginning. And that means that there is going to be no way that is more foreign to us as sinners than the way of Jesus. And it means that for all disciples, there is going to be no way that is more countercultural than Christ. So a disciple is someone who at Christ's call has turned from their own way and come back to Jesus, the one whom we all left in the beginning. We turn from our own way and we come back to Christ. We repent, that is, and put all our trust in Christ. And so we belong to Him. A disciple is someone who is devoted from the heart with the community of disciples, to learning and following Jesus in all of life. It is a radical thing to become a disciple of Christ. As I said, there is no way, there is no person more countercultural. And this is so obvious, so clear. But think of what the world pushes on us. Find yourself. Believe in yourself. Be yourself. And we do all of those things, I think, Pretty naturally. At least we try to. We, we try to find ourselves, so to speak. And we all market ourselves. What does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. There is no way that is more radical. There is no person more countercultural than Jesus. And when when we hear that, and when we give that message, we're thinking, who's going to want to hear this? <laughs> when we hear it ourselves, we think how big, how massive, how hard, how costly that will be. Deny myself, give up all that I am. But you have to put that hard message, and it is a hard message, a hard command. You have to put that right there with this. We're talking about the same king who also says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." This is what a disciple is. This is what discipleship is all about. Learning Jesus, denying ourselves to learn Jesus and find our rest in Him. 
All right, let's keep going. And you can see why this is going to turn into at least a couple of weeks. How do we make disciples? We can come to an understanding better of what a disciple is and discipleship. How do we go about the process? First, we have to go. We have to go. We have to spread the word. And don't forget the word that we are spreading. We are good news people in a grievous news world. Let the joy of the gospel be your strength. The the law commanding you do this and don't do that, that is not your strength. It is the gospel that has freed you to be reconciled to God through His Son. It's the gospel that means you belong to God forever. That is your strength. It's the gospel, this freedom, that you are the child of God and His heir, that you belong to the kingdom that can't be shaken. It's the joy of that that is your strength. And knowing that, realizing again, meditating upon the awesomeness of it, you have to reflect on the gospel. If you are not reflecting on the wonder of the gospel, you are not going to proclaim the gospel. And disciples who don't make disciples, disciples who don't proclaim the gospel forget that they are disciples. They forget who they are. They forget this fundamental identity and this charge of the Lord Jesus. And I believe that ultimately it's because we forget what we have, the good news of Christ and Christ himself. But he says, again, go. Build it, and they will come. Field of Dreams, 1984, I think. Famous, one of the most famous American movie lines that is, there is. The church took this on as like a kind of mantra. Build it, and they will come. Build the program. Get the building. Make it fancy. Make it all fine. And they will come. Sit back. Sit still. It's all inactive, passive discipleship. And it's wrong. From the get-go, it's wrong. But it's been the mindset. Build it and they will come of the church for far too long. Jesus says, go. He says, don't, don't wait. Don't sit still. Go. We must go. Go to the world. So how do we go? And I... I I know that you're going to have in mind, just because of all of the things that we've rehearsed all through our Christian life, you're going to have in mind, I think, a lot of mistaken things. And, And I do too. Things that I have to overcome and say, no, that's not what he is saying. That's not what it's about. And I I have to save a lot of them for next week. I'm just going to give you a few things now. Okay, but here's how we go. Go down the hall of your house into your child's bedroom. Discipleship starts in the home. Making disciples starts in the home. We go there. We go to people there, children, grandchildren, whatever the case is, your own family members, go. Second, the command to go says that we must be intentional to initiate. Intentional 
to initiate. You cannot be passive about making disciples. And that's what I mean by intentional. If making disciples is not in your plans from day to day, it is not going to happen. Making disciples must be something that is at the forefront of your consciousness. Be intentional. Be intentional to initiate. That means Christians must take the lead in pursuing relationships, in forming friendships, in striking up conversations and steering the course of those conversations to the things of God, to the gospel, all of that. We must initiate. We must be intentional to initiate in the relationships we pursue and how they form and all of that. I have a lot more to say about this, but again, it's going to be saved. Third thing, and this is the first thing. I often do this. I give you the first thing last. The first and foremost thing is pray. You say that's the easiest thing. So, (laughs) it's the first and foremost thing. And it is never not the first and the foremost thing. You must pray. We must utterly rely on God for the life and the souls of others. We must speak to God on behalf of sinners who desperately need Jesus. We must pray. That is where our power lies. It is in relying on God in prayer. And listen, there is going to come a time in your life when you can't go. Whether you're debilitated by an illness that lasts for several months, or you're going to get to a stage in your life where you simply don't have the energy and you're wearing down, there's going to come a time in your life where you can't physically go, but you can always prayerfully go. So you can have a ministry in China, though you never set foot in that country, or in Iraq or North Korea or whatever whatever country you want to name. You can have a service in the White House without ever visiting Washington, D.C. How? By going in prayer. Go to God and pray on behalf of the world who desperately needs Jesus. And that is going to have all kinds of effect, of course, not only on the world, but also on you. But this is the first and the foremost thing. We must pray. That is how we begin to go. And I'll save the rest for later. Look at verse 20. We're going to talk about baptism next week. But the the second participle, baptizing being the first participle, the second being teaching. Look at that for a moment. He says, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you. What is the first thing that Jesus commanded you? What did he begin to do? What did he begin to preach? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he began to teach. Repent and believe. So when we think about how we make disciples and what all of the teaching entails, what we actually have to say to people, we have to start with the gospel, right? I have a lot left. So buckle your seatbelts. Don't take them off yet. And there's stuff, the important things that I want to say. This is where we begin. We begin with evangelism. What is evangelism? You hear in the word evangelism, evangel. And that word simply means gospel. So when we evangelize, 
We gospelize people. We are spreading the good news from God concerning His Son with the aim that people will repent and believe. We are good news people. Glad tidings people, to use the old King James word. I like that too. Glad tidings. Glad tidings people. Um, Brian and Ron aren't here this week, but a few months ago, as we were getting ready to eat out in the fellowship hall, I asked their youngest, Drew. He was holding this little white Bible. And I asked him, what is that book about? And he said, the gospel. Five, six years old. Right on, buddy. It's the gospel. The, the gospel is what all of the Bible is about. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. So we need to understand. Okay, so Jesus said we must teach them to make disciples. And to, the first thing he taught us was repent and believe the good news. We repent and believe the kingdom is at hand and so on. Repent and believe the good news. So we start with the gospel. What is that? You know, for a a long time in my life, even though I spent my life in church, I could not answer that question very well. My brain would start to search. Yeah, that's the word I know, I've grown up with. But what really is it? What is the gospel? A lot of Christians don't know. We must know. It has to be just, it has to be instinctive automatic reflex that we can speak the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defined it. This is what he said in verses 1 and 2. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. That is, if you hold fast to the gospel. Then he adds, unless you believed in vain, which um, I don't have time much to talk about, but what he was saying, because a false teaching had crept into the church of Corinth that there was no resurrection. And the only way that we have believed in vain is if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So that's why throughout 1 Corinthians 15, he defends and, and boasts in the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so... Verses 3 and 4, he tells us what this gospel, this word he preached to them is. This is what you and I received. This is what you and I stand in and what is saving us. It's the gospel. Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance. I want you to really know this verse. And especially these two words. It is always Satan's work in the church to displace the gospel, to move it from the center to the margins and let anything take its place. Like the fact that we don't have curtains in here. And maybe some curtains would be nice. I mean, anything can become like the focus of our talk and debate and people have opinions on this side and that side, whatever. It doesn't matter. What is of first importance? It is the gospel, the good news from God concerning His Son. Remember that. To the to the end of the days of Auld's Chapel, as long as this church has life on this earth, we must keep as central the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're responsible for that. 
you, the congregation, you are responsible to make sure that whoever it is that stands behind the pulpit and proclaims the word, proclaims the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he says in accordance with the scriptures to show us that this is what the Bible, the whole thing is about. It's about this Christ who died and was buried and was raised on the third day. This is the gospel. You could say, isn't there a little bit more to it? Yes, there's more to it, but there is not less. And this is the very heart of it. Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose on the third day. I want us to walk through the crucial things that a person must hear if they're going to hear the gospel. We're going to speak of four things as we have quite a bit before. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. If you say it three times in your head, you'll get it down too. God, man, Christ, response. That's four. When you have these words formed, you are forming in your mind, and I don't like the word so much, but an outline to follow in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We don't start with man. We don't start with the bad news. We don't. Especially in our day, when a lot of people believe that they are not accountable to anyone. They're out saying, why are you judging me? I can live however I want to live. No, we must start first of all with God. 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 Then the bad news. Man. Christ. And response. Okay, so where do we start in speaking about God? Church family, when we talk about God, we're not laying down the law. We're, there's no reason for harshness or pride or contempt or anything when we talk about God. We are boasting in God. So God is the beginning. And where do we start in talking about Him? Start with this. There is none like Him. There is no one like Him. Not in all the earth. There never has been. There isn't. There never will be anyone like Him. Not in heaven. Not on earth. Anywhere. There is no one like our God. And the world needs to know this because everybody thinks they know what God is like. If they acknowledge the existence of a God, which, thank God, is still true for most of the people that you and I know and the most of the people in the West, although it's changing. But everyone believes they know what God is like. They all have preconceived notions about God and His character. And you know what these preconceived notions are? They are projections of themselves. Either what they love, God is like this, I love this, so God must love this. Or, and this used to be more true, but it's still to a degree true, either projections of what they love or projections of what they fear. And as the person goes, so go their projections. They all fall short of his glory. They are all wrong. All of the projections of ourselves about God that people have, and they all have them, are wrong. So we need to tell them that there is no one like our God. He is other, the other. 
He is the holy God and there is none like Him. We need to speak of the God of the Bible whose perfections defy our projections. And as we speak about how there is none like Him, here are three things that come to mind about God that people need to know. First, they need to know that God is the one who is solely responsible for the state of being. Not evolution. It is God. He is the source of all life. In Him is life. He is self-existent. He's not, He is uncaused. The self-existent God. He doesn't need anything outside of Him. You don't have to explain all of this. I wasn't planning on saying this. It's all just coming out. Um, he has life in Him. Life in Himself. And all other life is dependent on Him. He is the source. As the source, He is also the standard. God is the ultimate reality. He is the absolute. He is the first and the last. All goodness and all truth and all beauty come from Him. All truth is His truth. All beauty is His beauty. All goodness is His goodness. He is the standard. And He holds us to His standard. The Bible says the rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. You don't know what faithfulness is apart from God. He's the standard. You don't know what goodness or beauty or or truth are apart from God. He is the standard. The Bible says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is the source, and He is the standard, and God the Creator holds us to the standard of His goodness. His goodness. And we chose from the beginning to break His command. This leads us to the second thing. Man. God is not the author of evil. The Bible says God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. James chapter 1. God is not the source of evil. Earthly evil starts with me. You want to blame someone, something for the evil in this world? We start by looking in the mirror. We are the source of evil. One of the heavenly beings that God created rebelled against Him wanting to be Him, wanting to displace Him. And He led a host of heavenly beings in rebellion against God. Following His failure to displace God, He invaded the earth with the intent of ruining what God had made and called good. But earthly evil started with us. Let me put it this way. Evil did not find a home on the earth until it found a home in the heart of mankind. And the first man rebelled against God and chose sin over God and its fruit, death over life. God had promised that if they had sinned against Him, they would surely die. And when they sinned, they brought guilt and all of these other consequences into the world. Guilt and shame and fear and hiding and blaming and warring against God and each other. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Adam was the representative of the human race, the representative head. So that if he sinned, all of his descendants sin in him. 
We are held guilty for his crime. And we say, how can that be fair? Well, I'll answer that in a minute. But this is the truth. We were all charged with Adam's guilt and the consequence is death. Here's the bad news. It's sin and death. The wages of sin is death. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It's because of sin. But here's the staggering gospel. When God came to the first man and woman after their rebellion, not only did he give to them the promises of death, all of the curses that he had warned about, he brought something else as well. He gave to them the promise of life. He would provide it. He would give it. And as they had chosen sin before, now they must choose life. God promised that one would come to save. God, man, Christ. He promised that one would come to save. There weren't a whole lot of details in the beginning. It was about the seed of the woman coming to crush the serpent. But this plan of redemption would be revealed over time through the ages until Jesus Christ himself came. You see, in our instinctive preconceived notions about God's justice, we, we instinctively, we know I mean, think of all the pagans, heathens of ages past who knew that there was a God or gods where they were mistaken who demanded justice. And in some of that, they were right. They were right to believe that they were accountable, right to believe that they had fallen short, and right to believe that the one to whom they were accountable would require justice. That instinct was right but they were wrong to think that they could make atonement for their own sin. They were wrong. We cannot save ourselves. As I mentioned this morning, a quote from J.I. Packer, God moves heaven and earth to save those who can't lift a finger to save themselves. God provides his own son. We think that we can be good enough, just be good enough. But who's the standard? Again, who is the standard? It's not your standard. It's not the government's standard. It's not. It's God's standard. His standard of goodness to which we must conform. We can't meet it on our own. We know the scriptures are clear. We don't have time to go over how far we fall short. God's the standard. And so God himself saves us from himself by himself. He sent his son in human flesh to save us from our sin. And here, here's the counter to Adam. Here's the counter to Adam. Jesus Christ is the second representative head of the human race. As Adam lived for us and failed, Jesus lived for us and prevailed. So we might say, how is it fair that I can be held guilty for what Adam did? Well, if you're going to say that, then you must also say, how can it be fair that I can receive another one's righteousness as my own? But that's what the gospel is about. We can receive the righteousness of Jesus as our own. He lived for us without sin and he died for sin. Rose from the grave, the one true mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And now God offers to all salvation through his son. And this is where we get to response. God, man, Christ response. The gospel demands a response. If we will renounce our own lordship of our lives and and trusting in ourselves, 
if we will trust in Jesus instead, who is the Lord of all of life and the Savior of all who believe, we will belong to God forever. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5.24 Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this is what we say, just as Jesus said to Mary there, so we say, do you believe this? This is our message to the world. This is the response required. Do you believe this? Will you trust in Christ? Will you turn from your way and trust in Him alone? God, man, Christ response. This is how we proclaim the gospel. Let me just encourage you with the truth that in this thing of making disciples, which is why we are here, we do this together. We are in this together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that you have given to us in your word, the good news of Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, that you made your word all about it so that we could not miss it. We thank you for saving us to yourself and also, Lord, for sending us out. And I pray that we would reflect so much on the gospel and its goodness, its power to save, that we would be filled with it, filled with it to overflowing so that others will also hear. And the power of the gospel will fall on their hearts. And they too will be awakened to the glory of your Son and believe all in him. Please use us. Use us, O God, to save sinners around us. Awaken our community to the glory of God in the face of your Son. And for this task, O God, we have the promise of Jesus. He is with us always. Fill us with your Spirit to give us love, to give us endurance, to give us courage and faith. All we need to fulfill the call that you have laid upon our lives. In Jesus' name and for his sake, I pray. Amen.